Uh, let me um, say a prayer for our kids and uh, the leaders for today and dismiss them downstairs, and then we will dive into the, the great book of Habakkuk. Let's pray. Lord, we love you, but we know that you love us most, best, and first, and thank you for that. And I pray that our children would understand that, not only now, but the rest of their life. Uh, would you just uh, burn that into their hearts, into their souls, into their, in their minds, and, and, and as a result, would they just grow in their love for you all the days of their life? Pray for our leaders this morning as they um, watch over our children and also instruct them. And um, yeah, Lord, would you also be with us as we open up your book? In your name we pray. Amen. Children, leaders, you're dismissed. If you've got your Bibles, uh, start looking. It might, you might find it by the end of the service. Habakkuk. In my Bible, it's just three little pages. I think it's like the fifth last book in the Old Testament, if that helps. So somewhere before, a few, few books before Zechariah, after Jonah, okay, kind of gets you. And if you've got an app, that's a whole lot easier, probably. A <clears throat> couple things before we uh, dive into our text uh, that I want to address, some, just some family stuff as a church. One is Celine. Man, many of you know Celine. She's a university uh, student here in the city. Uh, been part of our church now for probably since September. But she just came back from a one-week uh, uh, trip to Mexico, and it went well. She's studying to be a vet. And so they were using their veterinarian skills to serve the Lord in Mexico. And um, she's now heading to um, northern Alberta. What's that? To home, yeah. So look home. That's north, right? Middle, okay. It depends where you're from, right, Michelle? But anyways, um, I thought I'd give an update, and um, maybe over the summer, I don't know if we'll see her over the summer, but when she gets back, you can ask some things. Secondly, I don't talk a lot about money around here. You probably noticed that, uh, but sometimes we need to. Um, not, um, not because we're in a crisis, but um, I think it's important. It's not wrong to talk about money. Jesus, in fact, talked to probably more about money than a whole lot of other things. And, and, and how we spend our money and how we use our money speaks volumes to where our heart is at, actually. But um, as, a, as a church family, we started, 100% of our giving was external. Today, 21% of our giving is external. That, that's actually quite remarkable, and thank you for giving. Um, that's a remarkable thing. But also, just we were just looking at the books, January, February, and March, our giving has dropped over those three months. And not that we're in a crisis. We have, thankfully, money that we've been able to set aside for stuff like this. But just so that you know and so that you're aware, and since we don't talk a lot about money, I haven't. some of you probably don't know how you can give here. If you'd like to give, you can give. Um, I think some are doing it through direct director for all is that it that's how you say it i'm still old-fashioned i read a check but uh, if you if, if you if you'd like to do that talk to tom cottrell and somehow you guys will figure that out uh or we always have a box at the backs and may i add if you're giving cash slip your name and address in the envelope or on the outside of the envelope so you can get receipted at the end of the year uh that's actually a help for you and um 
you can do that. But you don't have to, but that's always uh, available. And then thirdly, if you go to our website, you can go, a lot of people give that way. You can just go directly on our website, communitygracechurch.org, and give in that, in that way. Um, I plan to share this again next week because I think we all need to hear it. So I'll say it a few times. And I will address and share that with our out external givers who have been faithful, um, probably through a prayer letter. And then you probably won't hear me speak of it for a while. So there, if you want more information where we're at, you can talk to Tom Cottrell. Uh, he won't tell you who's giving and what they're giving, but he can certainly tell you where we're at. Okay, that that is um, um, not a problem. I should have given him. No, he he's probably not ready today, but you can contact him and he can get back to you. Sound good? You don't have him memorized. Oh. Anyways, those are things that we have to bring up on occasion, and and I believe it's totally okay. Habakkuk. Three pages, a really little obscure book. Maybe you've never read it, uh, but it's a beautiful book. It's a book of faith. Now you might, as we read those first few, that first chapter, you might go, "Is it a book of faith?" But it, it really is. It's a book of God, uh, an insight on God's work in our broken world. And I think it's a helpful answer to some of the many troubled questions that you might have yourself. And so over the next three weeks, we want to walk through this little book, Habakkuk. Let me begin by setting the table. Uh, verse 1 is about all we know about Habakkuk, his name. We, we don't know where he came from. We don't know his father. We don't know his lineage. We don't know much about him at all. A lot of the other prophets we know a great deal more. But Habakkuk, his name means to embrace. We're not sure if that's important. Some people think it is. Uh, we know he's a prophet. In other words, he spoke for God. Uh, we're told in, in the ESV, the oracle, that Habakkuk the prophet saw. So he saw something. He received it, possibly a vision. And he was delivering a, an oracle, a, a, a message, which is a message from God himself. Now, you might have heard when Isaiah was reading, he read the burden that Habakkuk, the prophet, saw. And both of those words are right. The, the burden, the, 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 the original word kind of holds both of those ideas together. It's a message from God, but it's a message that was quite a burden upon the shoulders of this prophet Habakkuk. And we're going to start seeing why that word burden is so important. Habakkuk, as we go through the pages, we begin to realize when he was living and when he writes this, by what he says, he was probably about 600 B.C., 600 years before Christ. And so to understand the world of that day, it was a changing world. The, the, uh, the uh, superpower of the day had been Assyria, the great nation Assyria. And they were the ones who destroyed the northern ten tribes in 722 B.C. They were the ones that the nation of Judah was paying, paying to, just kind of keeping in good graces with. They, there was also to the south a nation of Egypt that wasn't quite as powerful, but still they could flex their muscle on occasion. 
But very rapidly and very quickly, these Chaldeans, these Babylonians, rose to power. And in 612 B.C., they wiped out Nineveh, the the Assyrian capital. In 605, they took out the, the Egyptians who were marching up to meet them, and they wiped out the Egyptians just north of Judah in 605. And it was about that time that they began to take over the, the known world of the day. They were a fearsome, a powerful, and a ruthless people. Now what was going on in the nation of Judah at the time? We're going to get some details from Habakkuk, but probably in Habakkuk's lifetime there was a king named Josiah. Josiah, was uh, he becomes king. He was just a little boy, so... He would have been helped by some some advisors around him. And when he came of age, he actually wanted to start some reforms and and renewal and revival in in his country. And he began to call the people to keep the law. And some of the things that they actually kept were things that they had never kept. Now, this falls on the heels of uh, his grandfather, Manasseh, who actually offered one of his children to be burned one of the gods that they were worshiping. And, and so jo- Josiah, there was hope in the nation. There was a potential revival, but, but unfortunately that revival, that renewal, that reform never really caught on with the people. The people continued to love the gods that Josiah's parents loved. Now Josiah was... Um, killed in battle in 609 B.C. as he decided to, to, to fight against the Egyptians. And it seemed like at that point all hope of revival came crashing down. And, and, and I think Joseph, uh, Habakkuk would have been a man, a prophet, who would have been praying for revival among his people. And with the death of King Josiah came kind of the, the dismal end to Judah. It was a sad time. Habakkuk was part of that world. In 597, the Babylonians actually came in and descended on Jerusalem and started carrying a lot of their people captive. We have Daniel and Ezekiel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They would have been captured in that 597 and taken to, to uh, Babylon where they would spend the rest of their lives. And then about 11, 12 years later, 586 B.C., Jerusalem was completely destroyed by these Babylon, Babylonians these Chaldeans, as we read in the text. So that was the day, the time period, when Habakkuk writes. It's internationally a a season of turmoil, and internally in their nation, a season of uh, a lot of what-ifs and and uncertainties, etc. It's in that context that we see Habakkuk, some of your translations will have on the top, Habakkuk's complaint. I think a better, a better way of looking at this is Habakkuk's grief or his lament. Because oftentimes when we read that word complain, at least I think of somebody who's angry, upset, uh, doubting. Uh, Habakkuk's not really doubting who God is. He's just wrestling with things. Did you notice he asks two questions? He, he starts out going, how long? And then he asks the question, why? 
And, and I can just see Habakkuk praying to God, saying, Lord, would you send revival? Lord, would you, would you punish the, the iniquities of the, of, of the evil people in our, in our context? He cries out, O oh Lord, how long shall I cry for help? And you will not hear. Now, throughout the, the Old Testament and even into the New Testament, we see the people of God using this language, crying out to God, how long? We see it in Revelation chapter 6, where the martyrs are with Christ. And they're crying out, how long till you have justice and you bring about justice to those who took our lives? How long? As saints, and we, as we look at the world around us, I, I, I think we should be crying out similar things. How long, Lord? And then, and then he goes, why do you make me see iniquity? Why, why do you allow me to see this ongoing injustice that's all around me, in my country, among my people? Why? How long? I call it a lament because, because it's not as if Habakkuk is doubting God because he's going to God. In grief and pain, he's crying out to him. He doesn't question God's sovereignty. Look at verse 3. Why do you, do you make me see iniquity? He's not saying, God, the world around me is, is terrible. He, he's saying, God, you've allowed this. That's pretty strong language. And he's not doubting God's righteousness. He, he, he recognizes that God would see it as wrong and see it as iniquity. Habakkuk will highlight Israel's sin. Now, this, he's talking about the people of God here. He's not talking about the Babylonians out there. He's talking about his own people. And he uses language in verse 3. Iniquity, wrong, destruction, violence, strife, contention. Some of your translations will use words like injustice and strife. The idea of injustice is, is, is he says, why do you allow me to look upon acts of wrongdoing? The word strife and contention speaks of disputes with neighbors. The word violence is a, a key word in, in the book of Habakkuk. We're going to see it eight times. Well, we see it in verse 2, again in verse 3. That's the same word that's used in Genesis chapter 6 when, when God is looking at the world, and he says in verse 11 to Noah, Now the earth was corrupting God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. So, so when God says, or when Habakkuk says, that the nation of Israel is filled with violence, he, he's saying this, this nation is like it was in the days of Noah. And God, you need to deal with it. Why aren't you? In other words, the relationships with God and others has gone horribly wrong. 
such a point in the text in verse 4, so the law is paralyzed, or the law is numbed. It, it's the law has become like a stop sign that nobody is listening to. And justice never goes forth. You know, as I read those words and, and I see violence and I see and I, I, I get a picture of the people of God treating one another in a, in a horrible way, times had really gotten gruesome and gr- gr- grim. And Habakkuk is wrestling with this. He's going, God, why aren't you acting? When will you act? You know, God, the, the violence that was done between the people of God, the Jewish people, It'll slow down for a season when God deals with them, but it will rise again when, when it comes to its height, when the people of God some 600 years later will take the Son of God, one of their own, and hand him to Pilate to be crucified. But Habakkuk speaks of his day with great grief and crying out, God, how long? Then God gives a perplexing answer. Perplexing answer. Verses 5 through 11. Listen to what God said. Look, see, wonder, and be astounded. Verse 5. All of those are imperatives or commands. And he's not just talking to Habakkuk because in the original it's in the second person. So he's talking to all the people of God. And he says, People of God, I want you to look, I want you to see, I want you to, uh, I want you to wonder, and I want you to be astounded. And he basically, he's piling up commands, and he wants them to know, sit up and take notice. Look among the nations. For I am doing a work in your days that you would never believe if told. God says, you might think I'm doing nothing, but I want you to look around because I am doing something. And if I told you, you wouldn't believe it. What's he doing? What's he doing? Verse 6, For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans. I'm raising up the Babylonians. And what we're going to start noticing is, is, is the reason Habakkuk is going to find this hard to believe is because as he's going to articulate and as God's going to say, the Babylonians, if you put, put them on a hierarchy of, of sins, they're worse than the Jews. And Habakkuk's going, how is it, how is it right that you take somebody worse than us to, to discipline us? But even as we listen to what God is about to say, we begin to realize that God's not just simply going to discipline the unrighteous, but it's almost like instead of pruning, he's going to cut the tree down. And Habakkuk's like, what's going on? I I don't get this. Listen to what God says. I am doing a work in your days that you would never believe if I told I'm raising up the Chaldeans, verse 6. Listen to who they are. They're a bitter and hasty nation. Bitter, meaning the, there's, something in, there's, there's something stuck in their soul that they're upset about that seems to motivate them. They're hasty. 
They're, they're marching the breadth of the earth. They're seizing dwellings not their own. They're dreaded. They're fearsome, verse 7. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. They're not looking to God or to a God to find out what is right and what is wrong, but they're defining what is right and wrong by what they think is right and wrong. Uh, at the end, they're actually saying their own might is their God. But because they're strong, they think they're right. Their horses are swifter than leopards. They were a nation that in war moved very rapidly, very quickly, covered a lot of earth. And yet at the same time, not only were they swift, but they were more fierce than evening wolves. They, they wanted to destroy. They were a ravenous bunch. The horsemen press proudly on. They, they all come for violence. The same word that we see that the Jews are, are guilty of, they are also guilty of. They gather captives like sand. Didn't God promise the nation of Israel that they would be more innumerable than the sands of the seashore? And now God is saying that, that, that I'm raising up a group that will make captives like sand. They pile up the earth and they take it. They, they literally laugh at kings. And when kings have cities that are fortified, they laugh at those fortified cities because they were able to build mounds and climb into the cities and overtake them. They were good at that. And then they sweep by like the wind and go on. On to the next adventure. Did you notice that these are an ugly, horrible, wrongdoing, dreadful, fearsome, violent people? Did you notice that God says, I'm doing a work in you, David? Did you notice that God says, I am raising them up. Doesn't that trouble you? God's taking credit for this. God says he's the source of the power behind them. In Ephesians chapter 1, you might remember this from last summer, but verse 11, in him, in Christ, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him, who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Christ works all things according to the counsel of his will. Everything. In, including the, the, the rising of nations and the, and the coming down of nations. Well, Jesus also includes that every head on our head is counted, numbered. So some, for some of you, that's he's spending a little more attention with. But, but God is sovereignly in control. Of every one of us, every little detail and every massive uh, movement on a world scale. God is at work. God is active. God is doing his thing. And when Habakkuk hears that and he goes, God, this, I don't understand what you're doing here. He's, he's deeply troubled perplexed now the apostle paul will actually take this language in uh in acts chapter 13 where it says i'm doing a work in your days that you would not believe if i told you and he's talking to the jewish people and he's he's, he's actually reminding them in acts 13 um, 
that the work that God is doing is, is this proclamation of the, the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And that this Jesus is the one that's going to save them. And, and that these people of Israel, these Jewish people, need to, to repent and turn to him or they will be destroyed. And unfortunately, in 70 A.D., that's exactly what happened. Jerusalem was once again destroyed, this time by the Romans. So you have this, this honest lament and grief and cry by Habakkuk, how long? Why? And God says, God actually answers him. He says, I'm actually on the move. It's going to be really quick here. And, and we'll deal with the violence. Now, I think Habakkuk was looking for maybe a pruning. Let's cut off some branches that are bad, and, and you know, let's get, let's, let's, you've done this in the past, God. But God is speaking of a language. He's, he's bringing a people that wants to literally chop the tree down. And Habakkuk's struggling with this. But yet God says, I'm in charge. Now look at verses 12 through 17. Habakkuk then will respond again. Some of your translations will have on the top his second complaint. Uh, I think it's his, it's his bewildered response. Look how he starts in verse 12. Um, uh, I think Habakkuk's a man of faith. By the way he prays, verse 12, he actually starts with what he knows is truth. He speaks to God, and he says to God, Are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God? He starts with, O Lord. The, the language of Lord that he's using here is, is the same language that God says, I am your, I am your God to the people of Israel when he, when, he, when he called Moses in Exodus 6. God, the, the one who revealed himself to the nation of Israel, the one who made a promise and a covenant to that nation, the one who said to that nation that all nations would be blessed through them, that's who he's appealing to. You are the Lord, the God, our God, my God. And, and then he calls out and he says, you are from everlasting, verse 12. That's, that's peculiar language. But let me look at uh, for you uh, from 2 Kings in chapter 19, about 100 years earlier, the people of Jerusalem were were surrounded by an enemy, the Assyrians. And King Hezekiah cries out to God. And God answers him and actually says, I'm going to wipe out the Assyrians. And he does that. But in Ezekiel chapter 19, 2 Kings chapter 19, uh, verse 25 and following, this is what God says. Have you not heard that I determined it long ago? I planned from days of old what now I bring to pass, that you should turn fortified cities into heaps of rooms. While their inhabitants shorn of strength, they're dismayed and confounded and have become like plants of the field and like tender grass, like grass on the housetop, blighted before it's grown. But I know you're sitting down and you're going out and coming in and you're raging against me because you've raged against me and your complacency has come into my ears. I will put my, my hook in your nose and put my bit in your mouth and I will turn you back on the way in which you came. And, and in this case, Hezekiah cries out to God and says, God, would you answer our prayer? We're surrounded by a nation bigger than us, and we cannot defeat them. And God answers and says, 
Don't you know that I determined a long time ago that this is what's in store for the Assyrians? And if you continue to read that story, that night 186,000 are struck by a plague and, and, and the, the Assyrians are turned back and Jerusalem doesn't fall. And I think when Habakkuk cries out to God, says, are you not from everlasting? He's got in the back of his mind what, what, how God answered King Hezekiah in that day of trouble. And he says, God, aren't you the God, that everlasting God who's determined everything and has a purpose for everything? And, don't, and isn't your purpose for us to be a nation that out of us a, a king, a messiah will rise up? Out of us the nations will be blessed? Lord, I don't understand what you're doing. Lord God, my Holy One. And, and then he goes, we shall not die. I think that's a statement of faith. Carries on, oh Lord, you have ordained them as judgment. He says, God, you will judge. And you, a rock, he calls them the rock, the one they can count upon, the one they can trust in. This is language that the Jews use often. verse 13 he, he he then sets his case he says god you you are pure eyes and see evil and cannot look at wrong why do you idly look at traitors how, how can you look upon these chaldeans and allow this to happen why he's, he's not understanding what god is going to do not only that but he says you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up. That's the wicked swallows up. That's the language of what happened to the Egyptians when they, when they crossed the Red Sea. The, 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 the earth swallowed them up, the text says. This is what happened to the rebellious Dothan and Byram when they rebelled against Moses and the earth swallowed them up. And our prophet is struggling with this idea that the earth is going to swallow up, these, these Chaldeans are going to swallow up the people of God. You are holy. You are holy. And then, in verse 14, Habakkuk says, You make mankind like the fish of the sea like crawling things that have no ruler. He says, God, you have made humanity like the fish of the sea. What's he saying there? I, I think what he's saying there is the Babylonians had a picture of their gods that was quite popular where their gods would have all the captive people in this fishnet. And our prophet says, in verse 14, God, this is what you've done. That's quite a statement. God, this is what you've done. And then in verse 15 and 16 and 17, he reiterates, he complains, and again, his complaint and his cry out to God, he reiterates, he says, these people are brutal, verse 15. He brings all of them with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet, so he rejoices and is glad. The, the Babylonians took what the Assyrians had already done in the past. They would actually take the captives, they would stick a hook in their lower lip, and then single file these people hooked together by their lip, 
would wander and walk to the place of captivity. And Habakkuk, knowing this, goes, this is what these people do. In verse 16, he says, God, these are their loves. They sacrifice to their net. They make offerings to their dragnet. So for by them he lives in luxury and and his food is rich. He says, they actually love their instruments, their instruments of war. Because it's those instruments of war that bring them great pleasure because it captures all of these stuff. And then in verse 17, he just kind of ends the thing and he goes, is he then to keep on emptying his net to mercifully killing nations forever? It says if they fill their net with one group of people, they empty that net and they go back and they go get some more. And Habakkuk's left wondering, God, what are you up to? What are you up to? Chapter 2 will begin with Habakkuk just simply saying, God, I'm going to take my stand, I'm going to station myself at the tower, and I'm going to look out to see what you're going to say. I'm going to wait upon you for an answer. We'll go there next week. But before we go there next week, I think we need to hear that Habakkuk understands that Israel Israel needs to be disciplined. He understands that. But his heart and his mind are, 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 um, could not grasp the extent of the punishment. They just could not grasp it. And now he sits and he's waiting an answer. And I think sometimes that's us. We don't understand what God is up to, what God is doing. We cry out to God and lament and and and. and and in faith, but maybe maybe a wavering faith, but we're crying out to him. But so my question is, how much more do we f- fail to understand that God in redeeming a fallen world, the intensity of the suffering that our, the Son of God had to go through in order to redeem us? You know, as we struggle with uh, why bad things happen to good people, when we struggle with um, difficulties in this world, do we struggle with the extent of the suffering that the Son of God had to go through in order for our sins to be forgiven? Do Do we wrestle with the warning that Paul gives to the to the people in the, in the synagogue where he says, you know what, God is about to do something that you, you don't understand. Get up, look. Because we see the fearsomeness of God's discipline in this particular section, in this particular piece of history that we recognize that our sin cost Jesus his life. Let's pray. Lord, as we